So as we look at John 12, let's just uh, open up our hearts, um, ability to learn. God, thank you that you have brought us here today and laid out this passage before us. So help us to grapple with it and understand it and to turn it around and apply it to your glory. Amen. The Son of God, when he came to this earth, is pretty much the most significant thing that's ever happened or ever will happen in history. It's like the zenith. It's the the clamation. His arrival divided so much. And we've been talking about division. You know, people against each other and, you know, he's, you know, if you're, believe him or you don't believe him. But if you really think about it, even in our calendar, the calendar is divided with the cross, isn't it? Before Christ, what is it? It's B.C., before Christ, and then A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. That is, you know, they'll try to find a way to get rid of that too, probably politically correct. But you know what? It's in there. It's the calendar. It's the way it's divided when Christ came. So historically it divides. It divides human destiny. Jesus says that those who will reject him are going to die in their sins, and those who believe in him will have eternal life. And also brings out and evokes the extremes of love and hate. And we're living in a world today where we're starting to see those extremes become very defined. The divides between devotion and rejection, worship and blasphemy, faith and unbelief. People who, who um, believe him are divided into sheep versus goats, wheats from tares, believers from underbelievers, saved in the lost. It's a division. He's a dividing person. And because of this division that he um, causes or exposes, he is able to have other attributes about himself displayed. Because if he came to a world and we all just loved him and were were robotic and all this kind of stuff, and it's a wonderful thing, you know, he's a savior and everything, we only would see that side of him, those characteristics that are, are manifested in dealing with a people like that. But because he came to a very dark world that was lost in its sin, that was the deprivation of mankind, and there was nothing good in us, spiritually dead, because he came to a very dark world of that, we are able to see other attributes of him manifested. It's almost like taking an orange. If you have an orange and on the outside of the orange, it's pretty universal what it looks like, you know. But when you cut it open, it's pretty significant inside, isn't it? Juice and fibers and sections and color and smell is released. And so the dividingness of Christ helps us to see more things about him. And when more of his attributes are displayed and we acknowledge that he is glorified. So let's take a look at John 12. Six days before the Passover. We are now in the Passion Week, aren't we? Six days before the Passover. Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner party for him there. This is a celebration. I mean, it's a very simple statement, but they were, this was a big party for Jesus. To acknowledge who he is, to have a celebration of life 
that he brought their brother back from the dead, that he claims to be the resurrection and the life, and in him is life. And it's like they wanted to express their love for him and their gratitude for him, so they have this party. And we find Martha there glorifying God and serving God in, in her way that she does that, that heartfelt service that Martha had. Martha served And Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at table. Simple little statement there. Martha served. But you know what? You know that's loaded with, you know, you women who are, have the gift of hospitality. It's like, yeah, let me have that. Let me just do this for Jesus. I just want everything to be just so wonderful and just, just making a a fantastic um, meal, an all day event to have the Savior there with his friends and people that acknowledged him and loved him. And Martha was serving primarily directed at Jesus, motivated by loving gratitude to him. She generously honored him. And then we see her sister Mary in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we see Mary also there demonstrating in a maybe spontaneous outpouring of her love, maybe it was planned, but in her way, she takes this valued perfume um, from made from nard, very costly. It was costly because of the distance that had to travel. It was probably from the northern Indian mountains, um, and it had to be imported, and it was pure nard. It makes it say it was pure nard that makes it even more expensive. The quality of it was very valuable, and she had an outpour, a self-abandonment of expression, something of value. She just poured it on the Savior's feet. The other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, also record that she anointed his head, also poured it on him and his hands, and, and just poured it on over him. Washing feet was something that was left to the pretty much the slaves or the house servants that were on the bottom end of the barrel. Because, you know, back then they didn't have boots and socks and things. They walked around with sandals on, very dusty, very, you know, dirty. They didn't ride in cars. They didn't, you know, they walked on dirt a lot. And because of that, they were probably healthier. We absorb a lot of minerals through that, too. There's something to be said about that. But their feet got very, very dirty also. And so it was an act of humbled service to be able to wash someone's feet. And there she was, just self-abandonment. A woman of standing, of social um, status in the community, letting her hair down back then too was also a very humbling gesture. So we have this, this party this scene of gratitude, of glorifying Christ for what he's done. He's the resurrection and the life. He loves them, and they love him. And then enters on the scene in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot is there, isn't he? One of the disciples. He was about to betray Jesus, and he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to it, to what was put into it. 
He, there was no noble cause here on thinking, oh my gosh, look at all the little homeless people we could feed or whatever. He has no, no noble cause there whatsoever with him. He was a disgruntled follower of Jesus. Maybe tagged along, thinking there would be the big dream of being part of an earthly kingdom. Look at all the people. And I'm sure those money bags held a lot of money. You know, I bet you they did. And he would pilfer off the top of that. And here was more money that he couldn't put his hands on, slipping away from him, being poured all over Jesus. And he was, he was gasping, furiated by this. And he lashes out at, at, at Mary. And Jesus immediately defends her and says, Leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's make a little clarification here. There's another place in scripture where it refers to a, a sinner woman, sinner, a woman sinful, a prostitute who came also and anointed his feet with oil. That was a different instance. That was at a household of Pharisees that he was eating at. And so it was another, another story. It wasn't this. That story, maybe the whole jar was broken and poured on. This one wasn't. So this, she probably used part of it, and then she used, kept part of it for whatever. Who knows? Maybe she had used some of that with her brother's um, uh, burial. We don't know. But Jesus comes to her defense and puts pretty much Judas in his place with that. So we see contrast between a self-abandonment and a generous outpouring of love and gratitude and hospitality to Jesus, and we also see some very self-interested people, people who are full of themselves. There's Judas, and then in verse 9, we have the chief priests. They made plans to put Jesus to death, to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They were upset because all these people were believing in Jesus, putting their loyalties with him. Um, They were going to lose some of their power. They were also upset because the Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. So the fact that Lazarus was walking around after being dead was pretty much of an embarrassment to them. So they were planning on snuffing him out somehow. So we have also the crowd of self-centered curiosities, thrill seekers that were also following him. And later on, we find out that ultimately they are become great antagonists against Jesus. So we have his loving family of Lazarus and those followers. Then we have a group of people that are just tagging along to see what they can gain from that. And then we have Judas, who's going to outright deny him and, and betray him. And then we have the the leaders who are very too self-important that they can't let this get away because if that happens, too many people were believing in Jesus. You couldn't be neutral with Jesus. You either had to be for him or against him. Luke eleven twenty three says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality when it comes to Christ. So we're seeing that Jesus is glorified in this part of the passage because of the resurrection power of of giving life that he has and the love and the compassion that was displayed. Those things are being 
acknowledged and glorified with these people here. Four times it makes a reference in chapter 12 of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That was in verse 1. In verse 9, the crowd was there because, why? Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, was also there. And then we drop down into verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. And then they have it where they were also there because he had done this sign. So the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead, that was a huge draw for these people. That was something that only God could do. So that was a, a huge manifestation of power, and he was being glorified through that. So as we carry on in verse 12, it says the next day. And John is very specific when he has his timeline with this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus is divisive. Jesus doesn't do things the way we think he's going to do things. And here's an example. Here he is, the king of glory, the Messiah, going to come, going to save us from this Roman occupation and set up his kingdom here. They had all this wonderful ideas and plans that what he was going to do. But we see that he's coming into town to die. They weren't expecting that. But as God's plan unfolds and this triumphal entry was really a magnificent thing because he's triumphing over sin and death, ultimately. And when it says that the next day, it's the exact day that was predicted that he was going to do this. God's plans aren't, oh, that didn't work, so we're going to change it and go in plan B, or we're going to let it fold out the way it's going to happen, and we'll kind of see. And he's not up there kind of just saying, okay, well, I'll be there if this happens, or if plan C happens, then we can do this. He is outside of time, and he is sovereign, so he knows all these things and how they're going to unfold. Today, us sitting in here, this day was planned before the foundations of the world were laid, that we would be sitting in here learning about this passage. During that night, Judas probably snuck out, betrayed Jesus, recorded in Matthew 26. But up to this point, Jesus has always said, no, you can't take my life. It's not the hour. It's not the hour. But now now it's becoming to be unfolded now. And he's allowing this plan. He's not going to do anything to avoid this. This exact day that he chose to enter Jerusalem fulfills the Old Testament prophecy in Daniel 9, 24. I'm sorry, Daniel 7, 24. Daniel 7, 7, 3. Um, Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. I'm sorry, it is Daniel 9, where it talks about how he's going to be coming. I didn't mark the right thing. 
So it is prophesied that exact day in Daniel 9, here we go, where Artaxerxes made the decree to rebuild the temple. And that was 445 B.C. And it was going to be 483 years until the Messiah's coming. That's what I was looking for there. So Artaxerxes decides, you know, in 445 B.C. to make the decree, we can start rebuilding the temple. And then the seven, year, the seven years of 70s or whatever, you're calculating it out, 483 years, comes down to the exact day where Jesus, Messiah, was going to come into Jerusalem. There was probably over a million people, we mentioned this last week, that were there for this Passover. We have two large groups of people. One large group of people that heard that he was at Mary and Martha's house, and so they went out to see him and hang out with him there because they heard what, you know, and Lazarus was going to be there too, and they were going to see him. So they have that whole group of people, and then they have a whole group of people that were went into Jerusalem for the Passover, and they heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. So they're going to come out, and they're going to meet in the middle. They're going to meet him and join him, this huge throng of people that are going to be pouring into Jerusalem now to, with Jesus on his glorious entry on this humbled donkey. Um, that's a symbol of humility. But all that was lost on the crowd. The disciples, in verse 16, they didn't understand at first what was going on. Hindsight's always better, isn't it? But when Jesus was glorified, after he rose from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Remember, at this time, they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. We have the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus Christ indwelling us. So we can read this scripture, and we can have his Spirit telling us things. They did not have that. But John 14 says that Jesus tells them the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I have said to you. Don't you just love the help of the Holy Spirit? And then in 1613, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whoever he whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Well, having the Holy Spirit within us is a key thing in understanding truth. We can be easily hoodwinked into deception for many different reasons, and we'll get into those. Um, So we have masses of people now coming in on the exact predicted day, in the exact manner that was predicted that Jesus the Messiah was going to be riding into town. We have also a glimpse of how the gospel is being spread. This is like going out. The Pharisees and leaders were upset that it was going to be, many people were going to follow him. They're already believing in him, and they're they're losing their alliance they had with these people. They were getting pretty irritated about all that. They looked at all this masses of people following Jesus, and they were getting increasingly frustrated angered and alarmed about what to do. They had just told all these people. They let word out, if anyone knows where he is, let us know so we can arrest him. Didn't they just tell them that last week? Is anyone going to them and saying, besides from Judas, where he's at? No, they're hailing him as a king. Their plan is not working. What if Jesus leads this crowd in a revolt? 
Then the Romans are going to be really mad because they knew as long as us Jewish people kind of did our own thing and kept quiet, you know, rendered under Caesar what, you know, did abide by those laws, we could do whatever we needed to do. But if we start misbehaving, there's going to be problems here. We're going to lose some of our freedoms to do what we've been doing. And if Jesus comes in and stirs up these people, that might be the end of everything. So they feared the situation because it could, had the potential to spiral out of control. It's interesting because what they start to do then is, like we see often, they start lashing out at each other. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So they start bickering among each other. Many people were following Jesus because why? Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, those people continued to what? Bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. They bore witness. They talked about it, and others heard, and they came. It spread by the word of God, and how will they know if they don't hear it? That's so true today also. Um, So the tension is building. The division of those who follow him are just a great divide, and the hatred of those who are against him is just getting deeper and deeper. The gospel spreading. Verse 20 shows us a little glimpse of how it's spreading even unto the Gentiles. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was, with, um, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip wasn't sure what to do about that because Jesus came for the Jews and Israel and all that stuff. So he goes and to Andrew and tells Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, they don't know what to do, so they went and told Jesus that this was going on. These were Greeks, Gentiles, who had abandoned, abandoned their pagan religion and had turned to worship the true God because they were coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. They were celebrating the Passover, and they wanted to meet Jesus. They were wanting to have a little audience with him. And so they went to Jesus to ask what they needed to do, these people. These people are coming. What are we going to do with them? Jesus' response is very interesting. Kind of a puzzling response that he gives them. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's what I wanted Daniel 7 for. Daniel 7, 13 makes a reference to that term, Son of Man. And, and uh, the, um, to be a, a Pharisee, to study Scripture, to study Old Testament, they knew that term, son of man. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom not, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So that phrase, son of man, would trigger in them this passage, this prophecy that happened. Jesus is is very specific with his words that he's using about himself. 
And so he goes on to say, the hour has come for this son of man to be glorified. Boom, he's coming. His eternal kingdom is going to happen. The excitement is happening with that. His next verse says what? The truly, truly, pay attention, you guys. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We know that. This is biology, right? This happens. He's talking about his death. He says, whoever, whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is a very profound statement. It was, well, all of them are, but this is loaded with stuff that was very puzzling. Again, he's causing David, he's saying, well, wait, we, we see the scripture and this is what we think is going to happen. And yet he's saying this and he's, he, it's not an eternal kingdom and he's dying and he's talking about everyone, anyone who believes in him. They were shocked, shocked. The son of man glorified, not by conquering, but through death. That's shocking. Shock. Salvation is for anyone, not just Israel. This is a shock. Shock. Anyone, the heart attitude who chooses to follow him must deny himself, hate his own life. Well, that's not fun. You know, Judas isn't going to buy into that. He, he signed on and had a good time. Anyone receiving that was going to follow him was going to receive these blessings of promise of eternal heaven and honored by God the Father. So they are in a whirlwind. No wonder these disciples didn't know what was going on. They just, total confusion with this. To truly follow him, not the masses that came to follow, but to truly follow him, it is for anybody, whoever, hates his life. There's a self-denial that comes into play with that. Jesus was causing division. But in reality, he was really gathering together he was really collecting his church he was really calling out those who believe it looks like the division and that was happening but he was uniting his believers glorifying himself by revealing who he is selfless self-denying another side of him savior and redeemer And the more we know about him, the more we love him, and the more we glorify him. So now we have he's facing the cross in verse 27. Now we have that human side of him again. And the cross dividing point in history. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He knows that this is why he came. This is the climax of all of it. But the agony of, you know, the thoughts there. How can I get out of it? No. Nips it in the bud right away. It's not going to happen. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. How? Through his life. And I will glorify it again. How? Through his death and resurrection. And the crowd stood there and heard it and said, It had thundered. 
Okay, here it is. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Hearing God's Father speak from heaven. It was just thunder. No, an angel spoke to him. But Jesus answered and said to them, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus' anguish is growing. He's not horrified at not being successful. With what's, he's not fearing failure or anything. But what is going to be happening to him, and he, he knows it's going to happen, in Hebrews 12, 2 says there's going to be shame, bearing the shame of the cross, the shame of sin, experiencing God's wrath, being separated from the Father. He knows all this is going to happen. Um, He looked past it, the shame of the cross, to see on the other side, you know, sitting at the right hand of the Father and the glory that would happen to kind of get through that. Don't we do that sometimes? I'm going to go under surgery and it's like, I'm not going to think about all, you know, getting ready. I'm going to think about next week at this time, it's going to be all over with. The dentist is like that too, isn't it? Tonight it'll be all over. So he set his sights past that, it says in Hebrews 12, of the shame of the cross, the shame of it, where he actually became the sin. And then the whole experience of receiving God's wrath on him, punishment, and the separation that that causes from God the Father. He did not go to the cross detached or indifferent. He didn't get put to sleep. He experienced the whole thing. His humanness felt all the pain associated with bearing the curse for sin. His death is central to the redemptive plan. If he hadn't done that, if he hadn't died, there would be no substitution for sin. There's not going to be any other way. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other, no other Person, being, anything, cow, number of chicken or whatever to be sacrificed could, could do it. It wasn't going to happen. No one to pay the price. There would be no offer of salvation to say if you believe in this, you can have, it can be a substitute and have salvation from that. There would be no hope. There would be no hope. And there would be no future but hell if he hadn't died on the cross. So we see the other side of God, the loving, um, raise Lazarus from the dead, fun, friendship, you know, fellowship kind of thing, all those things. And now we see this side of who he is also. And as this side is manifested, he's also glorified. The attributes that were manifested on the cross, magnanimous love for people who don't deserve it. How could that possibly be? If we all loved him, and you, you know, it's easy to love people who love you, but to love your enemy? So we see that displayed with this. We see his holy wrath against sin and his perfect justice. Why did God do that? Why can't he just look the other way and just, you know, forget us, whatever? No, he's a holy God, and justice has to be served. That's a side we wouldn't have seen, right? If this wouldn't have happened. His redeeming grace, his forgiving mercy, all displayed in his infinite wisdom of this plan. So you can see now why it had to happen. And as we see these attributes of him, as we see these things, how they had to come about, we see how glorious he is. 
The father answers his cry, reassuring others that his, reassuring those listening that his death was not disapproved by God, but they are united in it, glorified through his life and glorified through his death. But the ones who were listening were trying to, you know, explain it away. Oh, it was an angel, it was thunder, whatever, you know, kind of just so much in denial. You know what, there's, you probably have heard this before, I love this. It takes more faith to not believe in God than to believe in God, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh, all right. So verse 31 to 33 points out three things that he rejoiced in with these victories. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I will be lifted up from earth. I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die, death on a cross. So three things he's rejoicing about. He's going to bring judgment against evil, the satanic system, and all that it's involved. Boy, we can look at the newspapers today and wish for this today, can't we? Satan loses his authority, right? He's, he's, he's gone. He lost his authority and his influence at the cross. It, talks, it mentions that in Colossians two fifteen. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Colossians 2. Isn't that a great verse? He disarmed them at the cross and put them to shame. He's going to have much fruit and all who believe in the gospel will be saved. That's what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about the pain and the sorrow. This is cognitive therapy at its best. You don't focus on the negatives. You focus on the positive stuff. You know, what's going to happen here? This is what's going to happen here. And he's the only one that can do that. But in verse 34, we see this. Um, So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. Right? That's that, you know, his kingdom's going to be forever. How can you say that the Son of Man, referring back to that Daniel passage, um, will be lifted up, will die? Who is this Son of Man? They are mocking him now. They're mocking him. They were unable to accept the truth that the Messiah had to die. So these are more of God's attributes, certainly with this one, with dealing with these people, is long-suffering. Another attribute that he's glorified for as it's displayed here. All right. Final part here, 35 to 50. Talks about that day, in anticipation of that day when that light, the light, the one true light that brings light to everyone goes out. It's the final call to believe. So Jesus said to them, the light, he's referring to himself, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Walk while I'm here. Believe. Understand. Least darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in him, in the light, that you may become sons of light. That's the gospel right there. Believe. It's here. The truth is here. You're hearing it. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it aside. Soon he will be gone, and they'll be plunged back into darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful... Let me read that again. 
For God who said, let light shine out out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How many prepositional phrases are there, really? But it just builds on it how how beautiful it is um, when the light is here because he's not going to be with them for long. Jesus was exhorting his hearers to believe now before the before he's gone. Now, they lived in a time where they didn't have electric lights or solar lights, right? People traveled only during the daylight hours. You had to be in before dark or you were going to have a problem. You'd have to kind of honker down for the night. <clears throat> so this is a very sobering truth that he's saying here. If sinners persistently reject him, then God may remove his grace from them. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For Paul, well, we don't know if it's Paul, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Jesus is saying, we're not playing a game here. This is serious business. Paul writes in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give God thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations with, with those contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. These people know it's wrong. They know it's wrong. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of righteousness, evil, covetedness, and goes on and on. Romans 1. Jesus is saying here in John 12, now is the time you hear the word. Now is the time to respond. If you put it off, there could come a time where God takes his grace from you. No procrastination here. So he says that, um, but he makes a promise that those who do hear his warning, what happens? We become sons of light. We would radiate of God's glory in Christ in a dark world. So then it says that Jesus says this stuff. 
When Jesus had said these things, in verse 36, he departed and hid himself from them. So he's going off. He's got a pretty major week ahead of him there. Despite the massive evidence, the Jewish people concluded that Jesus was not the Messiah. What did John 1, 11 tell us at the very beginning? He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. What are the fatal causes of unbelief? Um, 37, it goes on to talk about bringing out Old Testament things and stuff. And I am going to go and say this for time's sake. Fatal causes of unbelief. We think, how could they possibly miss the obvious? Well, the power of sin is, is very, very strong. People love darkness because of their works for evil. They don't want to know. So sin is a powerful force within us. Plus the influence of Satan, who is a father of lies and just twists everything up. We can see that the wonderful study of apologetics, being able to present truth, thinking, okay, in a debate with an agnostic or somebody, you know, atheism, agnosticism, whatever, just think, oh, if we can present the truth, they're going to win us, you know, they're going to understand. But there's more to it. It's not just apologetics. It takes an enlightenment. It takes revelation by the Holy Spirit to open up the the eyes of our heart and our understanding to believe. So he's making it, even though it's just so obvious what he's done, he's allowing us to see how deprived we are and how dead we are in our sins, that it's actually God himself who quickens us through his spirit and enlightens us to understand the truth, and we respond to that truth. Um, Israel's unbelief, this passage goes on to say that the, the nation of Israel rejected him. That was all in God's plan. He had planned that all, that he would, that would happen and that he would open it up to the Gentiles to believe. It was not that it was unforeseen by him. It was predicted all along. Why? So God can display more sides of who he is. His sovereign plan to be, make known his holiness and in judgment. After years of hardening their hearts against God, There will be a day where all Israel will be saved. That is yet to come. We see that these followers that followed after him in 41, some believed, but out of fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it because they didn't want to be put out of the city. Yeah, he's probably the son of God. He probably is. But, you know, if we we acknowledge him, then we're going to lose our standing. Were they true believers? No. No. Not true believers. First John 4.18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. A real true believer has the boldness to be able to speak that he is saved. And we know that you can believe in your heart, right? That Jesus is Lord and you confess it with your mouth. Two prongs to that. The final part here in 44 to the 50 is a summation of Jesus coming. And it says that he cried out. He cried out. 
Pretty much the gospel there. Whoever believes in him, believes in the Father who sent him. It's a summary of his coming, and it culminates in verse 50 where it says, eternal life. And he says nothing that the Father hasn't told him. When I run this off the printer, and Ken hands it to me, you know, because it's in his office, he brought it to me today, and he says, this is a 50-minute lecture, Molly. (laughs) I said, I'll try to cut it down. He extends to know. But there was so much stuff in here that talk about, it was just rich. So the crux of it is this. All this stuff that we're finding out about God, we see him glorified even in evil situations, don't we? But we don't focus on the evil situation. We set our sights on him, on the hope of glory, and realizing that we are sons of the light in a very dark world. God, thank you for your word. Help us to glean what you want each person to glean out of this study, God, for your glory. Amen.